How about that? Can you hear me now? Don't have to yell. My wife says I could cover a whole room anyway. Um, thank you for the opportunity to teach. I've taught once before. You have the privilege of sitting under Kyle Scarborough, who is, I think, one of the greatest teachers at, at Christ Chapel. So it's not going to be Kyle quality, but I'll do my best. Now, Kathy told me, my wife told me, my wife Kathy over here told me that Don had mentioned in one of his previous lessons that he was using PowerPoint as a crutch. So I want you to know that I use PowerPoint as a motorized scooter and a full body replacement. <laughs> and when I'm done, you're going to go, no more PowerPoint, please. But it's the only way you can cover 12 chapters in 40 minutes. And actually, we're going to do more than that. So let's get started. I, I kind of like telling people the way I teach sometimes, it's kind of like George C. Scott when he was talking about Patton. In, we was playing the, the role of Patton in the movie Patton. He said, I give it to them loud and dirty. That way they remember, to it. remember it. Well, I'm not going to give it to you loud, and I'm not going to give it to you dirty, but I am going to give it to you fast. <laughs> so hold on, buckle up, and let's go. So uh, I title this, Daniel, is Babel to, to Babylon and back to Babel. Genesis 6-5, you think, why are we starting in Genesis 6? Well, here's why. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Now, was that writing about today, or was that writing about then? You think about that. We'll get back to that. Well, about 6,000 years ago, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And, but mankind rebelled against God. I know none of you have done that, but I personally have rebelled against God. And humanity filled the earth with evil. That's what we do best. That's the norm. But God cleansed the earth, but preserved one family through the flood. And that family was Noah. And after the flood, God said, fill the earth and populate the earth. Pretty simple instructions, right? Ah, but humanity said no. We said no to God. So we said no. So mankind rebelled against God again, and that's in Babel. Now, the, the type font's smaller because I want you to not be able to see it. First thing man said is, come let us. So they want to be united. Mankind wants to be united. Build for ourselves a city. They want one government. That was the goal. Build a tower whose top will reach to heaven. Was that to glorify God? No. It was a new religion. And we will make for ourselves a name, humanism. You see, humanism is not new. It's very old. We've always worshipped ourselves. But God stopped the godless unity. First, the Lord confused the languages. How many of you speak English or just wave at it? <laughs> well, I speak Texan. The Lord scattered them over the whole earth. So a lot of things happened. So why did God do that? And you think about it. Unified man unleashes incredible evil. And what are we seeing in our world today? And you think, why am I starting with Babel? It will become more clear. You see, humanity longs to reverse Babel. You don't, may not feel it, but even in your heart, there's a part of you that wants to be part of something bigger. You know, the greatest generation? Wasn't that awesome? For three and a half years, the United States was unified with one objective. And what awesome things were accomplished. That is not the norm. The norm is awesome things that are not good. Now, God's going to allow Babel to be reversed, and Daniel is going to show us how. So let's give you a little time scale. I want you to be able to see kind of where things fit. About 4,000 B.C., God made everything. Um, I know that because I found a rock, and it said it on there. And you see that most of ancient history was covered by Genesis from about 4,000 B.C. to about 1,600 B.C. And then God's Word is written in that blue band from about 1,600 to about 100 A.D. And the rest of it are, is the end times. Do you know we're living in the end times? We are living in the end times. But you know, the end times have gone on for 2,000 years. Now, Daniel was written right smack in the middle. So let's get to it. So now after Babel, some stayed where they were, but some had a long walk. How long do you think it took them to get to South America? It's a long hike. They probably went to the ticket counter, but there was no flights available. 
Now, this is interesting. Technology accumulated based on the group's skills and its proximity to other people. So if you had certain skills, you took those with it. Don't you think the people that settled Egypt probably knew a lot about cutting rocks and building things? But certain men attempted reunification under their leadership. They were the empire builders. And in Daniel, God reveals the future and final empire reunifiers. You see, man wants to be unified, but men want to be the unifier. They want to be the one that everything is unified under. Have you noticed that tendency of people wanting to be the one in charge? I like to be the one in charge until I realize I might be the one in charge, and that's scary. So I like Jesus to be in charge. So let's go on. So I'm going to give you the times of Daniel. This is the ancient Near East. What you see on the right-hand side is ancient Babylon, and north of it was the ancient um, nation of Assyria, and you can see where Egypt is and where Israel is. So we're going to we're going to talk about right now. Israel is gone. The Assyrians had destroyed Israel, and Judah is idolatrous and running out of time. Time was running out, and I think time is running out on our earth. But we'll get there. Now, a man named Nabopolassar defeats the Assyrian army in 626, and the Babylonian Empire is born. How many of you have heard of the Babylonian Empire? Here you go. Most hands here. Do you realize it only lasted about 80 years? Pretty significant for a, a little, a short-run B movie. <laughs> no, it was more than that. Okay. So uh, down, but out, down but not out, Assyria coexists with Babylon. Fourteen years later, Nebuchadnezzar destroys Nineveh in 612. That was almost an impossible feat. God predicted it would happen. So Assyria's army re- retreated off to the west. And Josiah's Judah became independent. Josiah was the last righteous king in Israel, or in Judah. And isn't it amazing how God moved world history to free Judah and make them an independent nation? Because Egypt was not there, and Israel was, and excuse me, Assyria was destroyed. That's just another, that's, that was free. That, that guy gave you that for nothing. Because God moves history. So now... Egypt moved to help Assyria and gain control of the Holy Land, and King Josiah fights to stop Egypt. Remember, he dies in battle. And Nebuchadnezzar defeats Assyria and Egypt at Haran in 609. So now there's a new line, Carchemish. Notice how the line is moving further towards Israel. So it's Babylon versus Egypt. So Babylon prepares four years for expansion takes a while to design and build a new military. Actually, you have to grow and train people and forge swords and all those things to get ready. You're going to go attack. Egypt takes control of the Holy Land, and Egypt replaces King Jehoiaz with his brother Jehoiakim. So now we have a whole political dynamic going on. So what's next? Well, Carchemish is the line of demarcation, and Prince Nebuchadnezzar. Most of you know him as King Nebuchadnezzar. But he was Prince Nebuchadnezzar because his dad was Nebuchadnezzar. Broke the Egyptian defenses at Carchemish in 609. And the Egyptians do the smart thing. They leave. They get as far south as they could go. And Jehoiakim supports Babylon. He woke up one morning and he was surrounded by Babylonian troops and thought, Hark! I think I like Babylon. Good decision, right? Be the, that's an easy decision. So he's supporting Babylon, and Nebuchadnezzar is there, but then Nebuchadnezzar does this uh, unthinkable thing. He dies on August 15th, 605. So Nebuchadnezzar returns home to be king. Why did he do that? Well, because he has the army with him, and that ensures that the people recognize that he's the rightful heir. Armies tend to help do that. They're a great motivator throughout history. But what he does is he takes with him hostages to Babylon. When he goes back, he takes Judean young men for a purpose because that's his leadership style. So welcome to Babylon. We've made it. You're Daniel. You just arrived. So Daniel and his friends and a lot of others move to Babylon. So who is Daniel? Daniel is a prophet to more than just Israel. Let me give you some personal statistics. He was born in Judah in the royal family. 
He was physically attractive and intelligent. I, I meet the second part. <laughs> my family is not royal. Matter of fact, my, I'm a son of an engineer, but not an engineer. It's even worse than that. He lived through the entire Babylonian captivity. He was captured by Nebuchadnezzar in 605. He lived to the third year of Cyrus the Persian, change of empire, in 536. So he lived to at least 85 years of age if he was 16 years old of captivity. And he did that without flush toilets and air conditioning in that part of the world. Pretty amazing. He wrote the book of Daniel in the 6th century B.C under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. The book of Daniel is written in two languages. Why? First, Hebrew. That's the Jewish language. That's God's people. The second, Aramaic. That's the Gentile language of commerce and democracy. Excuse me, diplomacy. Meaning of it was it's a picture of God's actions. See, it starts in Hebrew, the first, first verse through chapter 2, verse 3, and it's showing God's demotion of his covenant people because we're going to see that Daniel is subservient to a Gentile king. Then it shifts to Aramaic because part of that being subservient is we're shifting into the times of the Gentiles, which is the vast majority of the people in this room. And you may thank God for it. You may. And then it shifts back into Hebrew because now that times of the Gentiles, he's going to talk about how God's covenant people, Israel, relates during the times of the Gentiles. What's God's future? So it pictures God's work in history. So it's, in, so it's written to answer two questions. One, as exiles, how then shall we live? And two, what is, the coming, what is coming in the times of the Gentiles? And so the answer to my, one of the applications for us today is, as Christians who are exiles, because you're not in heaven, are you? What did you just sing? When we all get to heaven, that's what we're supposed to be. And by the way, just as an aside, I'm just turned 58, and I, and I know that may be young for some of you folks, but it's amazing how things hurt. <laughs> I was helping cut down a tree yesterday morning, and the chainsaw wouldn't start. By the time I got it started, I was exhausted. <laughs> and things hurt, but Kathy's there to watch me because she know I'll overdo it. But... I'm looking forward to walking into the presence of the Lord and seeing the Savior and all of a sudden realize, I didn't know that was hurting. <laughs> so I'm looking forward to it. But right now we're exiles because we're not in heaven. So let's get started. The, the message of Daniel is this. God sovereignly controls all nations to fulfill his purpose. We were talking with a man, Kathy and I do most of our theological discussions at Whataburger. <laughs> Actually, there was a gentleman there who... I think was probably 76 years old, and he was just in, just jumped in the middle of our conversation, and, and he just said, you know, I don't know what's happening with our country. Things are so bad. And we started talking about it. And, and just, but for him, it was just things are so bad. And I tried to explain. I said, you know, God is sovereign, and we're coming out of a period of history in our country that is very unusual in the history of the world. And we don't really fully grasp that. But we're going to. God is sovereign. He controls the nations. Now, Daniel has three parts. The personal history of Daniel. Remember, I talked about that. And then we're going to talk about the second part, which is the prophetic history of the times of the Gentiles, the Gentile nations. You see the different chapters. We're going to have a dream of a statue, and Nebuchadnezzar is going to make an idol. And then, then there's a dream about humility. And there's a feast and fall. We'll talk about that. Faith and lions and the vision of the four beasts. And then lastly, Israel. We shift back to the Hebrew. There's a vision of the ram and the goat, the 77s, which some of you have probably heard about, and then the kings at the end. So we're going to go through it all. Here we go. Chapter 1. I'll tell you a little bit about it. If we went verse by verse, guess what? We wouldn't get there, so we're not. I have a few verses I want to share with you. Nebuchadnezzar was captured. He was taken to Jerusalem, so he was uh, part of that first exile. There was actually three Jehoiakim, king of Judah, he surrendered to Babylon. The spoils of victory were articles from the temple of Yahweh. So gold and silver taken out of the temple were taken back. Also young Judean men to serve him in Babylon. More than likely, Daniel was a eunuch, which means he was made so he could not have children. So he got to Babylon and got to have a surgical procedure that was probably not fun. 
Okay, so you kind of have to have that in your mind because they don't want anybody in the royal court who could potentially cause a question as to who the biological heir is. And they didn't have DNA testing, so they had another method. All right. The significance of it is fulfill the curses of the Mosaic law because God said in, in, the, in, the, in the Mosaic law that if you disobey, you will go into exile and you will serve a foreign king. Well, God keeps his word. Keep that in mind as we go through the rest of the book. God keeps his word, but he's real slow about it. And the times of the Gentiles begin. Remember Jesus said, Jerusalem will be trampled on by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And how many of you wanted to live at the end of the age when the times of the Gentiles were fulfilled? I know many of you probably thought, yeah, that would be cool. Well, maybe it is. Let's see. So the young exiles were trained to serve Nebuchadnezzar. They had to learn how to learn things. They had to learn a new language. You're going to get to learn a new language. And so they sat down at their PC, got Rosetta Stone up, and started going through it. Not really. Probably had PCs, but no, probably it was 60 cycles and 50 cycles, you know, that conflict. Anyway, assimilation. They had to learn the language and literature of Babylon. Maturation. They were given lavish food and wine from the king's table, so they had all they could eat. It was like going to Golden Corral every day. And Daniel resolved to obey God first. He said, I can't go to Golden Corral because all that food is fried and fatty. So the reality is that king's food was forbidden. A lot of it was for, forbidden. And so the solution was humbly requested an alternative. So can we just eat vegetables? And you're thinking, are you kidding me? And the Babylonian in charge didn't want to do that because it was his head. I mean, literally, it was his head. And so they said, well, let's just do a 10-day test. Well, at the end, it was all broccoli, yes. <laughs> and sour broughton. Yeah. Nebuchadnezzar declared them the best. So they were the best. So he and his four friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So now the lesson here is godly obedience brings blessing. Remember, the, the exiles are reading this book as well. And God's people are active witnesses to the world. So he was a witness. So that was the first inkling that there is a God who is greater than this God of Babylon. Because at that time, if your nation whipped their nation, which God was bigger? The winning God. But our God is so humble that he allows his team to lose because he has a bigger purpose. And you know what? That bugs me to death. Because I want God to win every time. I mean, just smite him, just squish him like a bug. But I need to be squished like a bug, so maybe not. So then Nebuchadnezzar had this awesome dream of this statue. And he sees this great statue in four parts. There's four metals. There's gold, there's silver, there's bronze, and there's iron. So he sees this huge statue, and he wants to know, let me back up, he asks all of his leadership, tell me the dream and the interpretation. And they say, oh, nobody can do that. Only a god can do that. Ha, huh, very smart. That's really good. Nebuchadnezzar says, I think you guys are a bunch of liars. I've known you're liars but I need the truth on this one because there's something about this dream that is so special. I need to know. So God revealed the meaning to Daniel, and there's meaning in the metals. Let's talk about the metals. The metals were symbolic. Only the head of gold was a united whole. Notice the silver has arms, okay? So it's not united. There's a decrease in metal quality from top to bottom. You notice how gold doesn't decay. It doesn't react with anything why it's used in your computer circuit boards and stuff like that whereas silver turns black eventually decrease in metal density from top to bottom so the image was top heavy and weak in the feet oh yeah you notice the feet they are iron mixed with clay and then it was struck by god and the image was supernaturally erased it pictures the times of the gentiles it's a picture so there's a specific interpretation that's given. There's four empires, Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome. These are the four empires are coming, and you're going, those are all so long ago. Well, there's this thing that happened in the middle. It's called the New Testament. We'll talk about that. Weakness, the human empires are doomed. 
Mankind wants to reunify like Babel, remember? But people like iron and clay will not mix. I'm going to read first verse here to you. Daniel chapter 2, verse 43. And you saw the iron mixed with common clay. They will combine with one another in the seed of men. In other words, they'll intermarry and have children. But they will not adhere to one another, even as iron does not combine with pottery. You see, people's they intermarry, but they don't become one naturally because we're all selfish. And you say, well, how do they want to, why do we want Babylon back? Well, we want it, but really it's who's going to be the one to make it happen. And it takes power to make it happen. That's why we're going to talk about empires because on our own, we don't. The Romans did it when there was an external threat. They would unify. They would fight. They'd go back to Rome and fight amongst each other. World War II, greatest generation. We talked about that. And let me turn it up just a little bit. Can you hear me better, some of you in the back? The, the country was unified, but once it was, the war was over, what did, we, what did Americans do? We start fighting with each other again. That's normal. That's what he's talking about. Human empires don't want to unify. Messiah is going to come, though. He's the rock. He's going to destroy Gentile power. He's going to replace it, replace it with his kingdom. But I wanted to put it aside. In Christ, we are one body. We do unify. Humanity doesn't unify physically, but spiritually, we can unify. Have you ever heard the phrase that, um, uh, what is it, blood is thicker than water, meaning that family? Have you ever noticed that in Christ you can be closer to somebody that is a Christian than you are to your own family? Blood may be thicker than water, but spirit is awesome. It's absolutely awesome. So there is a unity there is a unity, but the only good unity on earth is in Jesus Christ. Remember Ted says the church is the hope of the world? The only good unity is in Christ. What he's talking about here is not that in the book of Daniel. Okay, Nebuchadnezzar promoted Daniel. The lesson here to Daniel, from Daniel and God to Nebuchadnezzar, was God is supreme over the nations. But Nebuchadnezzar has a lot more to learn. So we go to chapter 3. Nebuchadnezzar, he decided he's going to make a gold image. He saw an image, so he thought, well, I'll make one. I'm going to help God out. And it was going to be a loyalty test. You fall down and worship the idol or else. So you would actually just die. And that way everybody was loyal. Can you be loyal like that? You know, if given a choice, you know, between death or not. So you prove your loyalty. Well, in the picture here, you see three guys standing up and somebody pointing at him. Well, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refused to worship the image. And Nebuchadnezzar said, I'll give you a second chance. And they said, no second chance is needed. We're not going to do it. <clears throat> we're obedient servants of you, our king, but we're not going to worship this image. They had confidence. They said, we are going to be delivered either by in life or by death. How about that? Would, if they had gone into the furnace and been burned to death, would they have been delivered? Yes, absolutely. So Nebuchadnezzar threw them into the furnace, and God stood with them in the fire and protected them. So you can't necessarily see in the picture, but there was a fourth person that Nebuchadnezzar saw, and they were walking around in the furnace. Everything burnt off. The ropes burned off. They were walking around, and there was this fourth person with them who looked like the Son of God. Nebuchadnezzar then wrote a proclamation of Yahweh's greatness to the world. Look here in chapter 3, verse 28 and 29. Nebuchadnezzar responded and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Now skip ahead. Therefore I make a decree that any people or nation or tongue that speaks anything offensive against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses reduced to rubbish, heap inasmuch as there is no God who is able to deliver in this way. The lesson here is, God rules over kings. So let's go to chapter 4. Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. He dreams a lot. He must sleep a lot. So he dreamed of a great tree that was cut down, but then it was restored, and it pictured future judgment on Nebuchadnezzar himself. 
Now, the fulfillment happened because Daniel told him, he said, you need to repent of your sins, and he didn't. But he had great pride, Nebuchadnezzar did, over his city Babylon, and he lost his mind and his throne for seven years. Have you ever wanted to tell your kids when they were little, just go out in the backyard and eat worms? You know, when they're complaining or something like that? Well, God really did tell Nebuchadnezzar to go out in the backyard and eat grass. So he ate grass, literally, for seven years. Probably Daniel ran the empire for him. But he submitted, he stopped, he looked to heaven, and he honored Yahweh. And he honored God as his ruler. And after he was humbled, his later greatness exceeded where he was. And he wrote a proclamation proclaiming his belief story. I'd like to read that, but I'm watching the clock. So Nebuchadnezzar's lesson here is that Yahweh selects all rulers, including Nebuchadnezzar. You see a message here? He's training this king who is really God and who is really in control. Next, Babylon falls. So after Nebuchadnezzar, Babylon was doomed. Remember, it's only 87 years. God raised him up for a purpose. The purpose was complete, so it's time for the next empire. Now his son, and there's a whole way of describing how his, his son, King Belshazzar, had contempt and not humility. He had contempt for men. That was he held a great feast during a siege. You see, the Persians had laid siege to Babylon. So Babylon's army had been defeated, and the city was surrounded by Persians. And so what does the king do? Let's have a party! That's what you want in a great military leader. That's what you want in your leadership. Ignore the external threat. <laughs> Somehow I thought there would be a response. <laughs> That's contempt for man because you're not taking a threat seriously. He wasn't. The Persians were dead serious. For God... He mocked Yahweh's temple goblets. He, remember those stuff that Nebuchadnezzar brought back? Nebuchadnezzar didn't defile those, but Belshazzar did. So then the hand, you remember the phrase, writing on the wall? Well, the hand appears and it wrote, wrote on the wall, and Daniel interpreted the message of doom. And I'd like to read that, but basically his point to him was, look what happened to your father Nebuchadnezzar. You saw it, you know about it, and you ignore the lesson. And now you get to bear the consequences. That very night, judgment came. It's really interesting story. The Persian engineers diverted the river, diverted the river, so the water level dropped down, and they walked across the river. And guess what? The Babylonian army was taking a cue from the boss, and the gates were open, and the walls were unmanned. So before the partiers knew that the city had fallen, the city was pretty much fallen. That's like you're in the innermost room of your house and you realize that all of your neighbors have just come in and you walk out. That's the experience they had. Well, your neighbors would probably be nicer than the Persians because they killed Belshazzar that night. Empire change. Cyrus, king of Persia, he becomes king. So God is sovereign over Babylon is the lesson. I raised you up, I put you down. So now we have Persia. Now, King Darius, which is, could be a co-regent a co or a territorial governor, or it could be another name for Cyrus, he placed Daniel in key leadership. And Daniel's faith in Yahweh made him excel, and Darius wanted to promote him. Now, Daniel is an old man. He is retired, okay? He was probably retired. And his reputation, obviously they know what happened, so they promoted him and made him one of the three major leaders. Well, he was so good that Darius wanted him to make him like number two in the kingdom. Well, the other leaders didn't like that. Because, do you know, back in those days, the purpose of these, these leadership was to guard the king's money because everything belonged to the king. And so that's what they... He, and Daniel was honest. So they plotted against him because his faith in Yahweh made him incorruptible. They made Yahweh worship illegal. And so King Darius was trapped into condemning Daniel. This is how they did it. They had to, you for 30 days, you could only pray to King Darius. For 30 days. Well, the king thought that was a good idea. Taught, you know, kind of stoke his ego. You can probably think of people in leadership in countries that would maybe like to be worshipped. Daniel refused to do that. 
Darius was bound by his law to condemn Daniel into the lion's den. By the way, Nebuchadnezzar was not bound to any law. He was the law. Notice, remember remember this? The kingdoms are different. In Persia, the king is bound by law. He may make it, but he's bound by it. But God safely delivered Daniel through the lions. By the way, the, the ruling said he had to throw Daniel into the lion's den. But did Daniel have to stay in the lion's den? No, he didn't. So he could get him back out the next day. Jesus had to go to the cross, right? And die on the cross. Did he have to stay dead? No. Same picture. So Darius proclaimed Yahweh's security to, superiority to all Persia. The lesson here is God is sovereign over Persia as well. So now we move to Daniel's first vision. Remember, the kings have been the ones having these visions. So now Daniel has a vision, and this is going to close out chapter 7 and the times of the Gentiles. So the first year of King Belshazzar is probably happened between Daniel chapter 4 and 5. Babylon, Babylon had not fallen yet. It was 14 years in the future. And God gives us dates to strengthen our faith and correct the scoffer so we know when things happen. And so there's a vision of contrast. So remember there's this vision of this golden statue. Well, Daniel's vision is different, but they're the same subject, but they're really different. So look, the first one was given to a pagan king and the second one's to a godly prophet. The the next one is a statue of man, but now it's going to be four horrible beasts. Then there's Daniel's the interpreter, but an angel is going to interpret for Daniel. The viewpoint of chapter 2 is man. How do we look at our empires? Gold, silver, bronze, awesome, beautiful. But then we're going to see God's perspective. Disgusting. Conclusion. The, The statue is imposing and glorious, but these animals are brutal and depraved. The times of the Gentiles is going to end in God's judgment. So, let's move forward. So, here's the statue, and there are the four animals. Let's talk about them. Four human empires. First, at the top is Babylon. He's the king of the nations. They rule by God's pleasure. There's a lot I can tell you in each one of these pictures, but we don't have time. Persia is the bear. It's stronger than Babylon, but not as glorious. It's larger than Greece is the leopard, the the It's patient and swift in the attack, but then it divides into four parts. And then Rome is that disgusting terror beast down there below. So let's talk about it. Rome was great in a lot of ways. It was a a huge empire. It was very powerful, very organized. Uh, It reached its peak about 117, and it died its last gasp in 1453. But let me tell you something about the Romans. I've got a quote here. Pax Romana, yes, but the Roman world was not a pleasant place for the great majority of its people. Life was brutal, nasty, and short. Sounds like a place you want to live, right? Sign me up. Now, the terror beast had ten horns, not, but that was never seen in ancient Rome, so it's bigger than that. The horns in Scripture refer to kings and kingdoms, and there's ten future kings or kingdoms. It's either Europe or the world. We've always assumed Europe. Remember back in the day, people talking about the EU, once they have 10 nations, it's, it's going to happen. Well, now they have a few more than that. Well, one less. <laughs> the one horn replaces three of 10 horns. That would be the Antichrist. And the times of the Gentiles ends in war against believers. And there's God's final judgment. God's throne courtroom in heaven is seen, and he swiftly judges the nations. And the beast in one of the horns is killed and burned. And then the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, sets up God's kingdom. Have you ever wondered why, when you're reading in the Gospels, Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man? Has that ever crossed your mind? This is why. He's telling you who he is. Not just his humanity, but he is the one who is going to set up the kingdom. He is the Son of Man. So the lesson here is God is sovereignly going to judge the nations and their rulers. All right? keep moving so now we got four chapters to go five chapters to go so let's look daniel's second vision was of the ram the goat and the little horn i call it the little big horn you like that (laughs) all right third year of king belshazzar in susa the ram is persia 
The ram pictured Medo-Persia. Their Persia came up last and it dominated. Persia expanded to the west, to the north, to the south, and it was led by Cyrus the Great. So you can see Babylon was pretty small, that little green area in the middle, over into a little bit into Egypt, but Persia was huge by comparison. Then came the flying goat with the prominent horn, and the goat pictured Greece and Alexander the Great. That is a wall painting of Alexander the Great. Anybody know what city that was found in? Nobody? No, it was in Pompeii. It was Pompeii. God graciously preserved it for us. And Greece under Alexander swiftly defeated the Persians. That was a phalanx. That's their, that was their highly advanced technology attack method is you pack these guys deep. So everybody, if you're in the front rank, you got eight guys pushing on you. How would you like to be in the front rank? <laughs> Actually, they wanted to be in the front rank because that was where the tough guys were. But it was very effective. Greece wiped out Persia very rapidly. Just like the uh, passage says, it was quick. It was a quick defeat. Uh, the great horn was broken and four horns replaced it. So after Alexander's death, the kingdom split four ways. So there were four kingdoms. And the, in Syria, Seleucid and Ptolemy, they fought over Israel until Rome. By the way, Ptolemy, uh, his, one of his great-great-great-granddaughters, you may know as queen as famous queen anybody know of egypt pardon cleopatra. cleopatra very good queen cleopatra that's where cleopatra comes into play she's out of that um, then the other horn arose the other horn pictures two evil rulers antiochus epiphanes uh, epiphanes means he's calling himself god by the way the Jews called him Antiochus Epimenes, which means he's nuts. Okay, Epimenes, I think, means he's like crazy. So he waged war against the Jews. He desecrated the second temple. He, defeated the, he was defeated by the Jews under the Maccabees. Remember, you see the Jews have the Hanukkah celebration. That's tied in with the Maccabean victory there. And the prophecy, though, predicts things much beyond that. I'm going to read that real quick. He said, Behold, I'm going to let you know what will, hap what will occur at the final period of the indignation, for it pertains to the appointed time of the end. So this is bigger. There's a bigger picture here. So God is using a close-in example to show us a much larger prediction. So let's go on. So how does this work? How is there a second fulfillment? How can we have a near fulfillment with a greater future fulfillment? Well, look, if you're Daniel and you're looking at in the future and you see the two, do you see the two pyramids there, triangles there? Notice there's one inside the other. But for Daniel, what do they look like? They look the same. Now, if you're God, you see this. They're separated by time. They're similar, but they're distinct. And that's what Daniel, in, what God is revealing in the book of Daniel, is you have a near term, but a much bigger future fulfillment. So Daniel studies in chapter 9. He knew that of Jeremiah's 70-year prophecy. Jeremiah said, you're going to be in captivity for seven years, but then I'm going to bring you back. So Daniel studied that. He did all of his research, and he so he went to God, and he confessed Israel's national and personal sin. Remember, I told you he's 80-something years old. So he had been around a while. He knew that the 70 years were getting close, and he asked God to fulfill his promise. Can you read that? It's a time scale. In red, first exile, 605 B.C., and the, the exile has ended when the sacrifices were restarted in 536 B.C. Remember, we just had a sermon series on um, the building of the walls, and that's all tied in. Well, right in here, after si that time period, around 537, right before that, is when Daniel starts praying. When Daniel starts praying, things start happening. So, God gives him an answer. If you wanna, we're going to take a few minutes to look at just these verses. We're going to look at 924 to 27, because these are probably some of the most famous verses in the book of Daniel. He says, 70 weeks have been decreed for your people and for your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, 
and to anoint the most holy place. A lot of stuff. Who made atonement? Jesus did. All right. All right, so look. So he says 70 years, 77s, which is really years, and there's a whole reason, but it's 490 years using a 360 prophetic 360-day prophetic year, which is, I can show you scripturally, is the case. So it says there's 490, 360-day prophetic years to finish God's program for Israel and Jerusalem. Then he describes in verse 25, the first 69. Look in verse 25. He said, so you are to know and discern that from the beginning of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. It will be built again with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. Remember the book of Nehemiah? Times of distress. So 480 years from the decree to rebuild Jerusalem to Messiah. The start was the decree of Artaxerxes to Nehemiah, which was probably March 5th of 444 B.C. So then you go and say, what's next? The end of that is the triumphal entry of Christ into Jerusalem on Monday, March 30th, 33 A.D., and I, I don't have time, but I can show you mathematically on the slide, it's to the very day. It's to the very day. When Jesus sets foot in Jerusalem and offers himself as Messiah, the clock stops. So then there's some events between the 69th and 70th seven. Look in verse 26. Then after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come will, des will destroy the city and the sanctuary, and its end will come with a flood. Even to the end, there will be war. Desolations are determined. So the Messiah is cut off. He was crucified on Friday. Jerusalem and the temple were destroyed in 70 A.D. And then the final 70, uh, final seven years. Then he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he will put an end, a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. And on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction. One that is decreed is poured out on the one who makes desolate. So the Antichrist covenants with Israel. He breaks the covenant and temple worship, makes temple worship about himself. All right, but there's more. Daniel has a vision of a great struggle, pre-incarnate Christ. Daniel is revived and strengthened by the angels. And the angels reveal there's an invisible struggle that holy angels struggle with demons for the control of nations. You know that? But God allows his people through prayer to influence the battle. Even though he was victorious, the spiritual warfare is never over. You think that? You do. The angel has come to reveal the future in detail to Daniel. So the next thing he does is give world history from Darius the Mede to the end. So the history is fulfilled. Chapter 11, 1 through 35, there's 135 detailed prophetic statements. I have another lesson I taught where you can go phrase by phrase and you can see exactly it was fulfilled, exactly as it said. King of the North versus King of the South. And it was fulfilled from 539 B.C. to 163 B.C. And it was given to validate this remaining prophecy. Verse 36, then the king will do as he pleases. It's a transition to a new kind of king an absolute ruler who opposes God himself, and that would be Antichrist. He does his own, he's an absolute ruler, he does his will, he makes himself the world's focus, he's hostility to the God of gods, he's successful and unstoppable for a time period, final world religion, he assumes deity, he's the center of his new religion, he assumes power, and wealth is given to his God of power. Remember, humanity doesn't want to unify on its own, we want to be unified, but we don't because we want to be the one who's in charge. And he's going to solve that because he wants to be in charge. And Babel is finally going to make its comeback. Unified mankind under one ruler is the Antichrist. New religion based on mankind, which is humanism. There's wars to the end. New God, Antichrist, is dedicated to expanding his power. He gets help from a foreign god, which is Satan. He attacks the king of the north and king of the south, which would be new nations now. There's a counter, he's attacked by them, and he counterattacks. Then, he, then they are defeated by him. The Holy Land is occupied. Peace treaty is made. Counterattack by forces from the east and the north. And there's another counterattack. The Antichrist retakes the Holy Land. But then Messiah defeats Antichrist. All that real fast. And then at the end, there's timing. When does this all happen? Well, the Great Tribulation 
is seven prophetic years, 2,520 days. We've got two halves. He talks about what happens. Well, there's the 30 days at the beginning, which I think are the events of the first 30 days. The Antichrist moves against Jerusalem. The daily sacrifices are stopped. The two witnesses are confronted. Bringing in a little book of Revelation stuff here. Events at the end of the 30 days, the abomination of desolation is set up. That's the image of the Antichrist. The second half of the tribulation begins. The events at the end, the great tribulation ends and Christ returns. That's the 1290 days that are referenced in Daniel 12. But there's more days. Well, you see, the situation at Christ's return is the Antichrist is defeated. Believers and non-believers survive the tribulation. So what do you do with the non-believers? The millennial kingdom starts. Well, tribulation survivors, the sheep and the goats, are judged. So you deal with them. Believers, the believer's assignments, your job has been given based on your faithfulness. Millennial kingdom set up logistics are put in place. My guess is it takes about 45 days. That's the 1,335 days. So how can I live this? It's very interesting. I like, why did God reveal this to us? Give us hope, but it's bigger than that. Jesus is coming. He said, look, I'm coming soon. My reward is with me, and I will give to each person according to what they have done. So it's more than hope. It's based on what we have done. What is, Jesus says, go therefore and make disciples. When I was talking to the man at Whataburger, we were talking about Go, therefore, and make disciples. So let me help you evaluate where you are on that continuum. And if you step on some toes, I'm sorry. Do you have a quiet time? In other words, a time in prayer and time in the Word every day. If you don't, no Bible, no breakfast. How's that? It only takes five minutes. No Bible, no breakfast. I get up, I heat up, get my, put my... Oatmeal in the microwave, put 99 seconds on, let it go. You know, oatmeal is supposed to be good for you, right? Next thing is, do you memorize Scripture? Do you hide God's Word in your heart? You know the thing I noticed about that man yesterday? He had no Scripture memory. He, he, he is, there's, I don't, I don't want to judge him, I don't know, but I'm telling you what, people can sit through a hundred sermons and be no different because they don't have God's Word in their heart. If you are not memorizing Scripture, don't say, I'm too old. There's people that are 80 years old who have memorized the Navigator's topical memory system, which is back in the day when it was 90 verses. It can be done. If you memorize one verse a month, do you know how many you have at the end of the year? Twelve. And guess what? That's more than you had at the beginning, which was zero. <laughs> so, know the gospel. For an example, can you draw the bridge illustration? Can you take out a napkin and with a pen draw the bridge illustration, bridge illustration and explain the plan of salvation to somebody? If you can't, I'll teach you how. There is a job that we have to do. We are never retired in the Christian life. I tell people that my goal is to be more productive for Jesus Christ every year that I am alive from this point forward than I was the year before. Now, I know there's health issues and things like that, and God, when you have health issues, God's redirecting you in a different area. Um, tell others. Ask, you say, well, I don't know any non-Christians. Well, good. Ask God for opportunities. Guess what? You'll, you'll find them. You know, one of the reasons, and when I was in college and stuff, I stopped evangelizing as much because somebody told me, if you lead somebody to Christ, you really need to help them get started in the Christian life. And I thought, I don't want to do that. Why? Because I really didn't like people. <laughs> well, shame on me. I mean, seriously, shame on me. And I look back and I think, what would God have done in my life? Well, God has since, he's taken the, the wood to me, trust me. And... My attitude has been corrected, so I can tell you. So if you're sitting there going, I don't like people either. Okay, I know where you're coming from. Let's get started. I'll help you if you, don't, if you need help. And I'm over time, so I need to finish. Care for orphans. You say, orphans? Say, so, yeah. There's a lot of Christians in this church who have no clue about how to have a quiet time, how to memorize Scripture, how to pray, how to pray. Get one of them. Maybe in this class. And you say, well, I don't, why do they need my help? Well, you know what? We're all beggars looking for food. We are. And you will be amazed. If, if you go to somebody and said, I care enough about you, Tommy, to meet with you, 
to help you grow in your faith, it, you know, there'll be a reaction of, that's pretty awesome. After the person gets past the, you, you think I've got a problem? <laughs> well, that's how you handle it. You don't go in and say, I am awesome. And by the way, I'm going to read this and I'll be done. You're never too old to start. Psalm 92, verses 12 through 15. Let me leave you with this. The righteous man will flourish like a palm tree. He will grow like a cedar in Lebanon, planted in the house of the Lord. They will flourish in the courts of our God, and they will still yield fruit in old age. Listen to this. They will be full of sap and very green. This is a biblical reason to be an old sap. To declare that the Lord is upright. He is my rock and there is no unrighteousness in Him. The book of Daniel, we see what's coming. We have a job to do. We're not retired. If you don't know how, I'll help you. But remember, it starts right here. You know where you are on the test. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank You so much for Your Word. You didn't give us the book of Daniel for entertainment. You gave it to show us on the map how much long we have, how much more time we have to do the business that Jesus has given us to do before he returns and puts an end to this earth. Help us to be faithful. Help us to be your people and productive for Jesus Christ. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you. Prophecies of Leviticus and applied it to. No, I haven't, but I should. Listen.